Hey there, podcasting family. This is Joel Copling, co-host of Real Me In, colon, a movie podcast, here with another edition of For Your Isolation, the series devoted to everyone out there in lockdown, quarantine, or self-isolation. Hope you're all staying really safe, and I'm alone this week, uh, or this particular episode. I will be having two episodes this week, but... Um, This one is devoted to my favorite films of 2005, and just before I get into those, just make sure that you hit that subscribe button, you know, share this podcast around with everybody, whatever platform you might use it on. Um, You know, I've been doing these with uh, guests, and I do have guests in the pipeline for later episodes, but this one, in particular, there were original plans that fell through, and I couldn't really find anybody to, um, uh, on such a short notice to, even though everybody's not doing anything, just didn't feel comfortable asking somebody to, you know, put their week on hold to, um, catch up with anything and, and watch anything that they hadn't seen or rewatch, um, movies. So I just decided to do this particular one alone. Uh, the same will be the, uh, will be said for the, uh, the 2000 podcast once I get to that one, just for different reasons. But um, this and my 2009 one, and then my upcoming 2001 will be the only ones on which I have no, no guest, uh, to record. So just bear with me. You know, I'm not super great with this in terms of going it alone. Uh, this is, this is something that I'm, that I'm new to. So just bear with me as I try to, uh, <laughs> you know, fumble through these. Um, but yeah, I'm here to talk about the best films of 2005 you know, it was the year of crash for the Academy. Uh, Paul Haggis's racial relations drama took home the Oscar for Best Picture in a fairly controversial year um, because it won over another seemingly deserving candidate. Um, now, just to deflate the tension, no, crash is not on my top 10 of 2005. In fact, not only do I dislike crash as a Best Picture winner, I pretty strongly dislike it as a movie in general. Um, this pa- this podcast episode is supposed to be positive, but I have to start out with a negative. The fact that um, if I were to have a top 10 worst films of 2005, Crash might show up. I think it's, I think it's pretty nearly useless, completely useless. So I can't say that I am a fan of the Academy's decision to award it with Best Picture. Um, but... Other than that, it was a pretty good year for the Academy. They had also nominated Brokeback Mountain, Capote, uh, Good Night and Good Luck, and Munich. And you will certainly be hearing about one or more of those on this list as I get through it. So again, bear with me here. This is not something that I'm used to. I'm used to having somebody else to bounce my ideas off of. But uh, but I've done it once before, and I think that I... That I understand kind of how to do this now. So we're going to get through this, um, and I'm just going to start right there at the bottom, folks. So no honorable mentions, nothing like that. Um, I may may mention a couple of those Best Picture nominees that didn't make it, might have been in my honorable mentions, but I'm not going to devote a segment to it. Um, You know, I'm going to give you an hour-long podcast here, and yeah, 
So let's get into it. So my number 10 is a film that is here, um, I think just barely, and it's actually a viewing on the basis of two versions of this film, the theatrical edition, which is quite good. Uh, it's actually pretty terrific. But the director's cut that its director released on Blu-ray later in the or on DVD later in the year, and on Blu-ray later uh, after that, uh, is kind of the definitive version of this movie. So if I had just been counting the director's cut, then it might actually be higher on this list. Uh, whereas the theatrical cut, though very good, may have escaped it. So the combined viewings of Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, places it at number 10 on my list of the best films of 2005. Now, this is the story of Balian, uh, a warrior and a defender of the city of Jerusalem during the Crusades of the 12th century. Um, it stars Orlando Bloom. It stars Liam Neeson, David Thewlis, um, various people, uh, really, really good cast. Ava Green's in this early role for her. This is even before Casino Royale really put her on the map in the US and I just think that the the visual effects work the stunt work in particular is kind of all-timer stuff. Um there's really uh, glorious battle sequences here um as staged by Scott and I think that the script by William Monahan who interestingly enough later wrote The Departed for Martin Scorsese is considerate in how it approaches this particular kind of story. Um, you know, Scott became rather famous, um, for giving us one of the definitive or seemingly definitive screen epics with Gladiator in 2000. And this was his follow-up to that. And then five years after this, he would attempt the same thing with Robin Hood, his retelling of that particular tale. But with Kingdom of Heaven, I think he makes possibly his best epic. He also made Exodus Gods and Kings in 2014 which really just didn't work. Uh, it was rather dull. It had a couple of neat sequences here and there, but that and Robin Hood really failed to recapture what I think he captured with Kingdom of Heaven. Um, and what I love about it too is that it has a real sense of uh, of uh, visual scale that is uh, intimidating, particularly in the director's cut, which adds a lot of screen time and contextualizes a lot of the story in different ways that are uh, just really effective. Uh, Bloom makes for a, for a solid lead. Uh, you know, he had been in Lord of the Rings, uh, that trilogy from Peter Jackson. He was also in the midst of stardom following the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. And he has this everyman quality that had been underused, I think, in terms of his performance in The Lord of the Rings. I do like his work as Legolas, but I think he was kind of let down by how blandly the character was written in those. His character really did not come off great in otherwise great an otherwise great trilogy. I think he came alive a little bit in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, but he was overshadowed by Johnny Depp. And here, I think that what happens is Scott uses uh, Bloom's kind of stony, almost stoic facial expressions to the movie's benefit. Uh, it makes it a, it makes him a really convincing and believable hero in, within this, uh, 
story set in the medieval times or relatively medieval times where um, the Crusades are fully engaged and uh, Christians are wiping out everyone in the land and um, in the in the name of in the name of God and um, yeah it's it's been a while since I've seen this one I probably would be able to offer a little bit more if I'd seen it within the past few years um, but from what I recall especially of the director's cut which is a, fa- a fabulous expansion of its world and themes I just really enjoyed this and uh, yeah so it sits here at number n- number 10. You know, again, I think it might have been higher had I seen, uh, or had I uh, maybe seen only the director's cut, or uh, it might have been off the list entirely if I'd seen the theatrical cut. Again, theatrical cut, very good, very good, would not have made my top ten given the other competition, but um, but the combined efforts of these two cuts, if you will. Um, is really excellent. Scott is notorious for doing that with his movies. He will offer us something in theaters and he will also offer us something extra whenever the movie comes out on, um, at home on home video. And this is sort of one of his more famous examples, not as famous say as Blade Runner, considering that one had four different cuts, uh, besides the theatrical cut, but this one is pretty, pretty significant in terms of that and uh just the expansion of the of the world and the characters and the themes and the storylines it's really really effective stuff so at number 10 i have kingdom of heaven from ridley scott now moving on to number nine i have the funniest movie of the year i believe yes i'm looking here yes this is the best comedy of 2005 for me. You know, people, uh, we tend to underrate comedies when it comes to top 10 lists, I think, but I try not to. I try to I try to put one in there if I can. And this one is just great as a movie, too. It's not just that it's great as a comic work. I think that it's also really got a big heart, and it's got a great lead performance from Steve Carell, and I'm talking about The 40-Year-Old Virgin. This was a big year for Carell, who was currently dominating network comedy television on The Office when this uh, when this movie came out. And in fact, it was it kind of ran concurrently. They were in production in the second season when this movie hit big, um, and it's just it it just works alongside that show to highlight the talents of Carell as kind of a modern uh, a more modern combination of the styles of Robin Williams and Jim Carrey. Carell is really really gifted at physical comedy and at using his body and his face to uh, high, to to underline the comic potential of something. I mean, I just caught up this week for purposes related to a future podcast with Anchorman The Legend of Ron Burgundy in which he plays one of the um, one of the anchors, uh, he's the, the, uh, the weather, the weatherman in that movie, um, to Ron, to Will Ferrell's lead anchor. And in that movie, he's going for broke. He is doing everything that he can to deliver the funny in every single line of dialogue. And it was a rare, I think, achievement, um, 
for him to have everything be funny in that movie. And in here, he's playing the straight man to everybody else's crazy, wacky guy. And I think that it really works because he's also able to be really sweet. He has the great sense of deadpan when reacting to other jokes or when interacting with other comic bits on screen. The story here is basically that um, he plays a guy who's never you know, had sex. And his name is Andy. And uh, he is uh, paired up with Catherine Keener's Trish by the uh, methods used by a few friends played by Paul Rudd, Romney Malco, and Seth Rogen, an early role for Seth Rogen. Um, it has a great supporting cast too: Elizabeth Banks, Leslie Mann, Kat Dennings, Jonah Hill in an early role. And it just really just, again, it goes for broke as much as Carell does. Uh, it is a raunchy comedy. It is very, very, very vulgar and, uh, extremely filled with crude sexual content, but it also has a really, really big heart. Um, you like Andy, you want him to succeed, whether it's at this kind of, uh, you know, uh, a conquest, I think it's called, or if it's just being a guy. And I think that with Carell's performance, with Keener's performance, uh, who, she's tremendous in this, um, it really does succeed in those regards. And I think that what's particularly keen uh, about this movie is that it understands its characters. It's honest about them, but it also really puts them through a comedic ringer. This is one of those situations where you watch the, you watch the movie and you wonder how any of the actors present with other actors doing comic bits, bits were able to keep their cool uh, even in the best takes. And that's really a good sign for a comedy to, uh, to achieve that kind of um, degree of, of success in comedies. I, I think that, you know, the office was doing this really well on TV and Parks and Rec and Brooklyn nine, nine and various others later on did the same thing. And sometimes with some of the same actors as that um, particular, this, 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 quality that this movie achieves and it's just really well directed by Apatow um, who you know has gone on to direct uh, several other movies uh, four other movies I believe and he's got one coming out this year if movies still exist so yeah it's just a it's uh it's also from a screenplay that Apatow co-wrote with Carell so it's you know it's really a collaborative effort not just between director and actor but between those two as writers and so yeah number Nine is the 40-year-old virgin. Uh, moving on to number eight, uh, I have a movie that is kind of also a comedy, uh, although it isn't as funny because it's not really trying to be as funny. But it is kind of a darker comedy, uh, very much a low-key and depressing one in comparison to something like the 40-year-old virgin. But it's from a director I really admire. I've talked about um, a, or hinted at some of his movies, in my number 10 spot, but Gore Verbinski took a break from the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise to direct this small film from a script by Steve Conrad uh, called The Weatherman. And this one stars Nicolas Cage um, as a Chicago weatherman who is separated from his wife and children, and the film just follows him as he tries to determine how to balance his professional and personal lives. And 
bolstering Cage's performance, which is amazing. It's one of his better performances. Uh, you have a, a, a supporting cast that includes the likes of Michael Caine as his father, uh, Hope Davis as his begrieved wife, and Nicholas Holt, um, Michael Rispoli. It is a great cast, and um, what I think is really clever about what Verbinski does is that he tackles this head-on with a straight face. This is a movie that considers its characters before it considers the situations. There's not much of a plot here, as I, as you could probably tell, but it is a real treat to see Cage in this more uh, kind of tapered-down role. Um, it is slightly heightened. There's some melodramatic stuff here. It's it's a little bit more uh, in tune with uh, some of its dark comedy than a full-out drama might be, but I really like what Verbinski was doing here with this particular character, and I love, 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 love Cage's performance. Um, that's really where it where it lies for me. The, the success of the movie lives or dies on whether or not Cage can twist his persona just a little bit to bring us something very different um, from his usual kind of big outgoing performance. I mean, this came just less than a year after the uh, National Treasure and was a couple years after one of his best performances, Matchstick Men, which uh, which I'll be talking about in a, in a future podcast as well. And I love what he's doing with this role. I also love Hope Davis um, as his wife, who's excellent at, you know, just sparring with him, keeping, keeping a, keeping the screen with him and Michael Caine, really good, kind of an unusual role for him to take. You wouldn't expect it. This was the same year as a very big movie that he was in that I'm about to get to. And I think that he was fantastic here too. This is the kind of movie that I would have hoped would be, uh, up for some Oscars. I I don't believe it was at all. Um, it may have been a situation uh, where it kind of turned some of the Oscar voters off if they even watched it. And then there's a question of whether they even watched it. Um, this was in the sweet spot, though. It was an October release in 2005 um, with a November extension. And I think that if, pe- if more people would have seen it, I think it might have made a splash. It's certainly worth checking out if you haven't done that. Um, I'm not sure where it's streaming or uh, or anything. I'm sure that it's up for rental at certain platforms, but this one is really one worth checking out. Uh, I do have a couple of kind of hidden gems in my list. This is one of them. I would say that I probably have three, and this is one of them for sure. Um, or if not hidden gems, then ones that are tremendously underrated by even the people who have seen them. And uh, yeah, I, I really, really admire The Weatherman. Um, it's a good one, folks. It's kind of a tough sit. It's very mouthy. <laughs> There's a lot of language in this one. But it is a very good film. And um, yeah. So that is my number eight. Gore Verbinski's The Weatherman. Definitely one to see. All right, moving on to number seven, I have the movie that I was just hinting at that Michael Caine was in. Uh, this is where I have Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. And of course, as the title suggests, this is 
Christopher Nolan's comeback uh, movie to this franchise that had all but died off after 1997's Batman and Robin. It was considered dead. It was considered unfilmable. Uh, it was considered unbringbackable. I'm going to make that a word here. But you get the gist. Batman fights you know, threats to Gotham City. And this tells how that begins with revenge that turns to a sense of justification uh, in his mind after a stint in prison in a foreign country. And he comes back to Gotham with a, with a purpose to strike fear in the hearts of men using his own fear of bats as something of a, um, like an arbiter almost. And I just love this movie. Now this is one where I've had an interesting relationship with it. I loved it when it came out throughout the years. I think that I was in various like, um, modes of being kind of the edgy guy who wanted to dislike something or not dislike, but be rather lukewarm towards something that was super popular. Um, for me, what this movie accomplishes is not only giving us a comprehensive view of what might drive Bruce Wayne to become Batman beyond just the killing of his parents when he was a child. Um, here, what it is, is it's a constant reminder of the fact that Gotham City is mismanaged on a crime, you know, a law, like a law enforcement level. Um, the fact that there's corruption, the fact that there's all this stuff going wrong. Uh, and he decides to use his considerable wealth almost against his own image and against the wealthiest in the town and those who might use it use that wealth for something that's bad. Um, and I think that that is a kind of the righteousness of this particular character. Christian Bale plays Batman as very suave, very debonair when he's out of the, the cape and the cowl, and then also stern, uh, resilient, and all of that within the suit. Um, it's a great suit. You know, it's a great car. His particular Batmobile in this is like a giant tank thing and um, that can flatten cop cars and, and all of that. And it's uh, you know, it's obviously an excuse for um, Nolan to stage a lot of action sequences that use that car to his advantage. Um, and I just, I love that uh, about it. So I also think that this gives us a great villain in Killian Murphy's scarecrow uh, who basically has used a, a series of, uh, or like a, a, a concentrated dose of um, a psychotropic drug to control his victims and then puts on a mask type thing and engages with their deepest fears while also extracting information or leaving them useless if he wants to. And Murphy's performance is kind of snake-like. Um, you know, it's easy to overshadow this performance with those given by the late Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight and Tom Hardy in The Dark Knight Rises. But I think that Murphy really stands on his own as a great villain. Um, and then you also have Tom Wilkinson, who's just smooth as silk as Carmine Falcone, who is a mob boss in Gotham City and really doesn't take any nonsense from anyone. Um, he even 
kind of messes around with the scarecrow. Probably not something you want to do. And I think that after his run of, you know, Memento and Insomnia, um, Hollywood really wanted somebody with a specific kind of vision to take on the Batman legend. And I think that uh, Nolan was the right guy. Nolan and his co-screenwriter, David S. Goyer, um, who's kind of off and on with his particular brand of storytelling. He can he can be off. This is one of his on days, David S. Goyer. But what I really loved is the whole, the film's scale is really just tremendous, um, especially for an, int- an introduction movie. I think that it makes Gotham come alive in a way that, uh, in a way very different from what Tim Burton was doing and extremely different from what Joel Schumacher was doing um, and certainly different from what the DCEU has been doing with it. So, yes, at number seven, I do have Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. Now, moving on to number six, before we take a quick break, I have a movie that is probably the hidden gem on my list. There are two other you know, uh, contenders for that. I already named one of them The Weatherman. I kind of have one at number five, but it's very likely, or it's more likely, that people have seen those movies than those who have seen my next film. Uh, which is uh, from a fairly con- you know considerable director. He's later um, he's before this had directed films like Monsters Ball and Finding Neverland, both Oscar nominated works. Since then, he's directed a couple of pretty big movies like um, Quantum of Solace and World War Z, both of which I really like when others don't. I think that this is an under an, an underrated director in many ways. Mark Forster brought us a really, truly twisted mind trip called Stay. Now, this one stars Ewan McGregor as a psychiatrist who is tasked to prevent a patient of his uh, from, cons- from committing suicide, and the patient is played by Ryan Gosling. Now, uh, he's also trying to maintain his own grip on reality as his world crumbles around him. This is a great cast too. A lot of great casts here. Kate Burton, Naomi Watts, Elizabeth Reeser, Bob Hoskins, Janine Garofalo, B.D. Wong shows up in this, and uh, Jessica Hecht, um, who I really like as well. So yeah, I, uh, I love this film. It's really twisted. It's very dark, but McGregor's performance and the performances from Watts and Gosling are absolutely fantastic at bringing this strange mind trip to life. Uh, it You aren't ever quite sure where you are, and you also don't really know, and you are not entirely sure that you are, that you, that you care whether the story is told in order, because ultimately this thing is pretty devastating stuff. And um, as it goes further and further, it really attaches itself to your psyche almost in the same way that this case does for this doctor. Um, And I just, I love it. So certainly one to seek out. You probably have to search around a little bit for it, but it's very, you know, Lynchian in many respects. And um, it's bolstered by these great performances that know exactly how to play this 
really complex material. Um, and I'm, I'm serious. It is truly complex. So yeah, that is my number six is Mark Forster's Stay. A really underrated gem. Certainly my hidden gem on this list. And it's you know, fairly high, number six. So um, I'm going to take a quick break and I'm going to come back. You're going to hear an ad. I'm going to come back and give you my picks for the five through one slots on my lists, on my list of the best films of 2005. So stay tuned, folks, and I will be right back. All right, folks, you just heard my picks for 10 from 10 to 6 the first half of my picks for the best films of 2005 and now I am going to move on to my number 5 film uh which is the other of the three choices the last of the three choices that are kind of hidden gems um this one I guess was seen relatively widely um I'm not entirely sure of the box office take but it's a movie that won't be very a very popular choice. It's sort of like last week with Miami Vice, um, whenever I named that as one of my best films of 2006. This is a similar situation. Um, there might be some who turn the, the whole thing off right now, um, but my number five is the wild and um, ADD and um, just... Go for Broke Domino from director Tony Scott. And this is sort of, kind of, sort of <laughs> a retelling of Domino Harvey's life. She was once a Ford model and she quit that to become a bounty hunter. And she was also famous for being the daughter of actor Lawrence Harvey, um, who, of course, was the star of such films as. Um, uh, the Mancurian Candidate, The Alamo, and The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm. So what I love about this movie is that Scott, who unfortunately left us in 2012, has such a command of pure adrenaline-driven style. Um, and this is one of his, uh, if not his most, adrenaline-driven adrenaline stylistic endeavors. Um, it stars Keira Knightley as in the role of Harvey, who is kind of portrayed as something of a ne'er-do-well, a, a really tragic figure uh, within her own story. And the real Harvey died shortly before this film came out, or shortly after. It was around the time this film came out that she passed away. Um, this is Scott working from a script by Richard Kelly, who... This is kind of a, an odd project for Kelly, who also gave us films like Donnie Darko and The Box and Southland Tales. And this one is a little bit more of a traditional biopic, or at least it is in the terms of Kelly's uh, career. <laughs> uh, needless to say, it's also very strange. You can't trust much of the perspective of this film, which is heavily favored toward Harvey. And, you know, um, yeah, I, I just, I love Kira Knightley's performance. It also boasts performances from a crazy cast that also includes 
the likes of Mickey Rourke, Edgar Ramirez, Delroy Lindo, Monique, this is before her Oscar win, Mena Suvari, Macy Gray shows up in this, Dabney Coleman, Ian Ziering even, um, and Monk fans will know Stanley Kamel, uh, who played Adrian Monk's uh, first doctor, um, Dr. Kroger. So, uh, yeah, I just, I love it. And, uh, yeah, this, this movie is kind of one of those situations where it's, it's a, um, it's an acquired taste. I think you have to be on this movie's wavelength from the get go. Um, you have to be fully committed to understanding how crazy this thing is right from the start. Otherwise, it's going to lose you in the mayhem. For me, it didn't lose me because I felt like I was probably understanding of Scott's uh, style by the time I saw this, which I think was before several other Tony Scott movies. I think I saw this back in 2009, right before the taking of Pelham 123 came out. I think that that sounds about right. And I think it was the same with um, Man on Fire and Deja Vu as well. I think that I was catching up with Scott's um, uh, collaborations with Denzel Washington. Um, And then I saw this as kind of a throw it in the mix. So whatever the case, um, I wouldn't be super surprised if you didn't like this movie. But for me, Domino at number five was definitely my kind of movie. All right, my number four is an old-fashioned Hollywood epic. Um, It comes from the director who had just made a trilogy of kind of old-fashioned Hollywood epics, Um, and that is Peter Jackson, who followed up the Lord of the Rings trilogy with King Kong, a remake of sorts of the 1933 studio classic. Um, This one, uh, you know, overhauled everything, everything about the original. It made the characters have more of a um, motivation, gave them more history, uh, lengthened action sequences, put in put in sequences that had been lost, or at least you know fairly good um, variations of those sequences. Uh, whether or not Jackson actually saw them, there's a big gigantic spider fight that was in the original movie and it was lost, hasn't been seen since, and Jackson includes that here. Um, in a great sequence of truly terrifying. And this one basically stars Naomi Watts as a young actress in the Mae West role, uh, a young actress who finds herself cast in the lead of a movie uh, from a director played by Jack Black and boasting a script by a screenwriter played by Adrian Brody that takes them to a an island um way off in the distance that has been uncharted. And there's a reason that has been, or it's thought uncharted. It ends up being the, uh, the habitat of some natives, but it's also, uh, the home of a massive, massive ape whom they named Kong. And eventually the movie falls apart for the black character, but he decides to, uh, exploit this giant ape and brings it back to New York to put it on display as, and hyping it up as, the eighth wonder of the world. Um, and also 
eventually finishes his movie with the very, very rough footage that he was able to get. And I just love the casting here. Jack Black, it seems odd to be one of the lead characters in a massive Peter Jackson uh, epic fantasy movie, but I think that uh, there's something that Roger Ebert once said that was very uh, telling. So, in the in the in the cases of Jack Black and Adrian Brody, these are these are not hero characters. They are a conniving director and kind of a a failing writer um, who writes as he goes and does scenes that are just you know kind of famously awful. Um, they're not heroes. They're not they're not action stars. They're not they're not that kind of thing. But the story of the movie though is of course that following up his direction of Andy Circus in the stop motion or in the uh, I'm sorry in the um the the motion capture role of Gollum in the Lord of the Rings Jackson once again uh cast Circus to perform the physical acting of Kong and then obviously put the the sheen of the um the ape over his body with various digital effects it's a cr- it's incredible work even today Um, and it's a really great performance too, especially as the film gets into the tragic stuff in the third act, when they return to New York, the final hour of this three hour and seven minute epic just is tremendously entertaining and really kind of, um, kind of, you know, like it it paved the way, uh, in many ways for something like, the Planet of the Apes trilogy, also starring Circus in the role of, of a primate, um, to really work on audiences. And I love how Jackson is able to push the, uh, the form forward in that regard, but also tell just this rich story. Um, it's a simple story, but it, is, but it has a richness and a depth to it that, is, uh, that are just infectious and it makes the three hours go right by. Uh, this does not feel like a three hour movie. And at the same time, it kind of does because it has such a grand scale. Uh, it's my favorite big blockbuster movie. It's the highest rated of those on my list. And, um, yeah, I love it. This was at one point, my number one, um, many years ago, I've seen movies since then, but, but I love this film, and I think that um, that Jackson was really onto something here. So that is my number four: is Peter Jackson's stirring, epic King Kong. Definitely see this one. It's now out on 4K UHD. If you haven't bought that yet, all right. My number three is one of two films from this particular director. He had a good year, and while War of the Worlds is not on my list, it would be in a list of honorable mentions. At number three, I have Steven Spielberg's other film, Munich, which came out in December with a January rollout. Um, this one tells the story of the Black September aftermath when um, basically there was an attack at the 1972 Munich Olympics that killed a lot of people, um, that really did kill a lot of people. And this is another case, uh, sort of like with uh, Spielberg's own Schindler's List, which really attacks from a central standpoint um, violence against the Jewish community. Um, in this case, 
an assassination of a bunch of Israeli athletes. Um, so smaller scale story than Schindler's List, which was more more um, uh, more about a mass extermination of Jews. This one is uh, also something of an extermination. If you think about the the um, the thought process, whatever that is behind it, um, but it's about the team that goes in and kills all of the people involved uh, and are given the okay by Prime Minister Golda Meir um, to do that. And it stars Eric Bana, Daniel Craig, Karen Hines, Mateu uh, Kasovitz, Ayelet Zurer in an, early, in an early role. She's since become more famous for being in Man of Steel. Jeffrey Rush is in this, Mateu Almerich. Um, I just, I love this film. Uh, I think that this is uh, one of Spielberg's best of the decade, the first decade of this century, in fact. Um, and it is a really, it's a really considered and deadly serious, but also um, incredibly intimate look at what it means to be a Jew. And of course, I'm not Jewish. You know, it probably should be higher <laughs> on my list. Uh, someone, a friend of mine who is Jewish, said that very thing uh, to me the other day, but I love it. Uh, it's Spielberg working from one of his best scripts that he's worked from, I think, uh, courtesy of Tony Kushner, whom he later reunited with um, on Lincoln, one of the best screenplays of this past decade, and Eric Roth. Um, it's just a great, great film based on the book by George Jonas. Um, yeah, definitely one to seek out and it's also bolstered by a great cast. I mean, Berna is fantastic. He was coming off a more, you know, traditionally kind of cinematically heroic role in Hulk and also a role in Troy. Uh, this was kind of his uh, steer toward Oscar prestige. I mean, this one, as I've been talking about, is uh, was nominated for Best Picture. And um, yeah, it's a tremendous win too. I, I was also nominated for best adapted screenplay. Certainly well worth that nomination. Um, I just think that the filmmaking in this is so powerful, hits all the right notes. Um, there's a couple of weird stretches, including the editing together of a sex scene and a scene of violence um, that kind of got a bit of a controversial uh, response. But for me, I didn't. I didn't care. I felt like that that was a little flourish, you know, something for for um, for Spielberg to show off his his props and and do something different. Um, but I mean, that's really the only weird bald patch. I, I think that this is a truly well considered and deadly serious examination of violence and the futility of it and the effect of it on a specific marginalized community, especially in this uh, kind of story with this kind of marginalization. It's tremendous, obviously, violence directed toward the Jewish people, and this is a really um, engrossing, too, as just a thriller uh, version of this story. So number three, really high up here. Steven Spielberg's Munich, one of his two great films from 2005. All right, so my number two um, is from a director who had 
you know, made a couple movies back in the 70s, took a long break, made a movie in the 90s, and then came back after seven years with this film, uh, which is The New World from director Terrence Malick. And this is the story told from the perspective of Pocahontas, of Pocahontas, um, uh, largely from the perspective, although it does also primarily star Colin Farrell as Captain John Smith. Um, and there's also John Rolfe, who's played by Christian Bale, another mention for Christian Bale on this list. Christopher Plummer comes up in this um, as well. Wes Studi, David Thewlis, again, Ben Mendelsohn in a really early role. Noah Taylor as well. Uh, ben Chaplin, Brian F. O'Byrne. I mean, you all get the idea. Michael Gray Eyes, really great uh, uh, cast, as is the usual case with Terrence Malick, who really knows how to pull in all kinds of talent in unexpected combinations and give us something special. Uh, this one is, uh, it also stars Koryanka Kilcher, uh, kind of an underused actress now. This was a really um, striking performance, especially at the center of something like a Terrence Malick film. It takes a very specific kind of performative energy to be at the center of one of these movies. You've got to be, um, well, one, willing to be to understand that you might be cut out of the movie, as Adrian Brody learned when he was originally one of the lead characters in The Thin Red Line and then was cut out of the movie entirely. But um, but whatever the case, Kilcher really just commands the screen with this performance that whenever I first saw the film, I wasn't quite sure what to make of any of it, including her performance. I saw this back when it came out in theaters in late, I think it was early 2006, although it was a late 2005 release, um, December with a, with a January release, once again, like Munich. And I really wasn't sure what to make of it because I had never seen a Malick film before. I wasn't quite familiar with the various, um, uh, with what was going on with the movie. It was a little odd to me. And so I just, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it, but now I've seen it a couple more times. I've seen the extended cut. I'm really wanting to see the super duper long cut that there's a rumored like five hour cut. Uh, that's how much uh, content he shot and was able to put together into a narrative. Um, you know, there's a, there's a rumor that that's out there. I really want that to be, a thing that, that I can have with me, like own. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think that it's a tremendous aesthetic marvel. The cinematography here I think is, is by Emmanuel Lubezki and that's his first, uh, collaboration with Malik. And of course he's since gone on to shoot every movie until song to song for, um, for Malik. And um, this is some of his best work, I think. In fact, it may be his best work. I know that there's a lot of tremendous work in The Tree of Life as well. Um, but here, he's having to deal with these sets that are recreating, uh, you know, this particular time in, the, uh, in, in North America, um, particularly the... Uh, um, New England area. And I just, it is stunning to behold. So 
Yeah. I love this film. It is my number two of 2005. Uh, for, for the record, it was my number one for a long time as well. After, the, after King Kong, I think this one overtook it. But I've got another movie here. Um, a movie that was also nominated for Best Picture. And in fact, won Best Director and then lost to crash in one of the more controversial Oscar wins in Academy history. Um, and that would be Brokeback Mountain from director Ang Lee. Uh, this is the story of two cowboys. One is Innes from Texas. He is played by Heath Ledger and Jack Twist from, I just have to say the whole name for whatever reason, he hails from Wyoming. Uh, or he lives in Wyoming. When the two meet, uh, he's played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, when the two meet and fall in love over a strange summer in which they must both be camped out on the mountain of the title. Uh, and, you know, they're, 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 um, they're kind of... Uh, sheep herding and they're out they're out there taking care of business on land and they slowly fall in love and the story follows their secretive relationship over the course of many 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 years um like a decade i think it is uh or almost a decade maybe more than that as the two marry uh two women played by anne hathaway and an Oscar-nominated Michelle Williams. Now, Ledger and Hall were also nominated for this film. Uh, Ledger for Best Actor, for which he should have won, although he did lose to Philip Seymour Hoffman in, in Capote, a great performance. And uh, Hall to George Clooney for Syriana. And then also Williams lost to Rachel Weisz in The Constant Gardener. But for me, um, I haven't seen The Constant Gardener, so I can't attest to Vice's performance, but Clooney didn't really, Clooney didn't really impress me, uh, in Syriana, a movie that I'm not a fan of, um, not fond of particularly, but for Hathaway and Williams, uh, I think Hathaway should have been nominated also for best supporting actress uh, for playing Lorene. Uh, that's the, um, uh, her character, um, who's the one who eventually marries the, the, um, the Hall character, I believe. It might be it might be reversed. My memory's gone these days, folks. Who knows what days are anymore? But um, it also has a surprise performance from Randy Quaid, uh, who shows up here, and also Anna Faris, uh, Linda Cardellini. Um, this is a great cast. Uh, it's a great film. Lee is no, you know, no stranger to romances. Um, you know, he did Sense and Sensibility. He did. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. He did Lust Caution. And I think that he has a particular eye for a command of character. And I think that that is also uh, underscored by the performances from Ledger and Gyllenhaal. Uh, Ledger, in particular, is no longer with us. And I just have to wonder, and this is this movie may contain his best performance. And yes, I'm also counting that movie um in that comparison point um 
basically what Ledger does is he transforms into Ennis. Uh, there is not a hint of who would later be the Joker. There's also not a hint of the 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 guy from A Knight's Tale. And I what I love is how he fully invests himself both in the accent. Um, it's been considered one of the better Texan accents from an actor outside of the U.S., and it definitely is that. He doesn't barter in a lot of the obvious uh, vocal inflective kind of um, cliches of a Texan accent uh, in a lot of, he just, he just buries himself into it, um, completely masks his own accent. But beyond that, it is just a truly devastating performance. There's a moment here involving a, um, a shirt in a closet that he takes out and smells. And by that point, of course, you feel the weight of this romance drop uh, through the, um, the the machinations of the plot, uh, such as it were. And so I just died. I, I just died right there. You, you, you feel for the characters here. You, you ache for them in ways that are, that, that make their, that make their romance truly real. You also feel in many ways, the hurt of the two wives who are, who are, you know, damaged by this relationship that keeps going without their, uh, their knowledge. Um, at the same time, you also know that this is who these men are. This is who they love each other. And in that way, it's really devastating when it gets down to the brass tacks of what happens at the end, uh, which, which, you know, kind of tapers the story off into a random accident that occurs that just absolutely tears through everybody, everybody. But even before then, there was maybe very little hope. And I think that that was an important turn for the film to take too. And, you know, Lee is working from a script by Larry McMurtry and Diana Osana, um, and specifically a uh, short story, I think, or, or novella from Annie Proulx, and uh, won it won the Oscar for best adapted screenplay for a reason. I think that what is so vital about this storytelling that is in this very straightforward, but the dialogue is rich, the structuring of the story um, as it takes its time between the different rendezvous that these two men have with each other in this era, which is by the way the 1950s America. Uh, when their relationship is not only frowned upon, but there's, there's violence connected to a lot of this. Um, and I think that that is what also underscores the devastation of the story. So yeah, it's a tremendous, tremendous piece of filmmaking and storytelling and acting. Oh my gosh. Jalen Hall, also great. Probably should have mentioned him. There's a real, I mean, he gets the Wyoming accent down just is fantastic um, here as well. And yeah, so that is my pick for the best film of 2005, Brokeback Mountain. Um, so I'm going to offer a quick 
recap just in case you uh, just in case you need one. So once again, my number ten film of two thousand five was Kingdom of Heaven from director Ridley Scott. My number nine was Judd Apatow's hilarious The Forty Year Old Virgin, uh, featuring Steve Carell in the comedic performance of a career. Uh, number eight was The Weatherman from director Gore Verbinski. Kind of an odd project for him, but great film. Number seven uh, was the sort of the the token installment, uh, franchise installment on this list, and that is Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins, his thunderous return to the Batman legend. Number six was the truly twisted and twisting and mind-trippy Stay from director Mark Forster's Seek. This one out however you can. It's great. Number five is Domino. This is the make or break, folks. You'll either like this immediately or it will be a chore for you to get through this one. But if you like Tony Scott and you like his more ADD movies, this one's for you. And number four, I have the old-fashioned Hollywood epic King Kong. At number three, Steven Spielberg's Munich, about the 1972 Munich Olympics. At number two, uh, The New World from director Terrence Malick, a new turn in the Pocahontas story. And at number one, my pick for the best film of 2005, Brokeback Mountain from director Ang Lee. Now, if you want to follow me, I'm at Real Joel Copling. That's R-E-E-L-J-O-E-L-C-O-P-L-I-N-G. I'm also at Spectrum Culture and Dallas Movie Screenings. If you want to read my writing, some of my old reviews are on my site at uh, joelonfilm.com, although it's on hiatus right now. And if you want to follow this podcast, Spotify, Spreaker, iTunes, iHeartRadio, CastBox, all of it, you know where to find it. Guys, it's been great. Uh, I'll be back on Friday with uh, good old Brian. And we'll be talking about the best films of 2004. Until then, have a good one, folks.